You're listening to the Running in Production podcast, where developers and engineers talk about their tech stacks, lessons learned, and general tips from running web apps in production. Here's Nick and today's guest. Welcome to Running in Production. Today, I'm with Matthias Feiweger, who is using Ruby on Rails to build a web app that lets you organize groups of people. Matthias, welcome to the show. Hi, glad to be here. Happy to have you on. Sorry for butchering your last name. Do you want to give us uh, the real pronunciation of it? Uh, I, I can try, but if I speak English, it's hard to pronounce for me even. Uh, it's Matthias Fieweger. And yeah, I'm part of building uh, Hitobito uh, and glad to be here on the show. Hi. <laughs> nice. So do you want to introduce yourself by letting people know a little bit more about the app that we're going to go over today? Yes, gladly. Um, so I'm a programmer or senior software developer, whatever you want. And since several years, uh, I'm also working on the team that's uh, developing Hitobito. Uh, I've been a Rails developer several years before that. I kind of lost count. I think it was 2001 where I first touched uh, Ruby and Rails. Haven't looked back since. <laughs> and um, yeah, I'm mostly doing the backend uh, stuff, but also I'm capable um, of the front end. But mostly I do the backend down to the server. Uh, if needed. Okay. So when all of this started up, were you the sole developer on this project before you broke out into a team of developers? It started out with a team. First customer that came to us and wanted a solution to manage their group, their organization, they just gave our company the contract and we said, we want to do this um, A in Ruby on Rails um, and B completely open source. And it was a youth organization. It's kind of like the scouts um, that are worldwide. It's the a Catholic version of scouts, basically. And yeah, they contracted us and uh, we built it open source. Then over time, other organizations also chimed in and now we have the same application running for different organizations. And all is an open source uh, and yeah, sometimes one company pays and sometimes the other organization pays and um, sometimes even collaborators from totally outside um, also contribute a little bit. But mostly it's contracts coming to us. Nice. Yeah, I have to wonder, like, how many SaaS apps were created where uh, it was like your situation, right? Where you got some contract work, built a thing, and now suddenly it's something you can sell to multiple people. Uh, that's pretty cool. I like that. Yeah, it's... Um, also, for me, it was uh, rather delightful because before you do, I, I came from a, a e-commerce background, so I had a shop and stuff. And it's okay; it's good to know that people can buy your computer stuff, but it's so much better to know that you help families and children, uh, basically, to go out in the woods and explore nature and uh, learn about themselves and build friendships. And that's what your app does. I mean, of course, it only manages the groups. It doesn't manage friendships. You have still <laughs> have to be friendly. But the app helps to get people together and get the parents so they can sign up their kids for the next summer camp. And that feels so much better that you have to keep an app running that keeps friendships running. Yeah, that's awesome. And when you built this app initially for that for that group... Did you build it in such a way where you thought that you're going to be also building like a more generic version of, of this so it can apply to anyone? I wasn't there at the beginning, but we, we didn't start out to 
built this for everyone, but in Switzerland, where I am, there are many youth organizations. Um, the Scouts are one example, but there are others that are maybe Catholic or um, other re religions. Um, but still, in the core, there are still Scouts and youth organizations and help young people um, yeah, to um, have a full life with summer camps and uh, friends and everything. And so there was, um, I think, the idea that this could be used for those organizations as well. We talked to them, and yes, they wanted this also, because, of course, in the beginning, um, the second um, organization just got a ton for free, because they had the starting point already. So they just contributed a little. And this part was only for them, because each organization has their own group structure. Those are completely separate completely separate repositories even. And then the core um, grew and grew and grew with the common features. I don't think it was planned the way it turned out now, but I'm very glad it did. Uh, because right now we not only have youth organizations, but also uh, some political parties which are uh, managing their members with this. Because in the end, you have people and roles in their groups which is the core, uh, but then you have events, and then you have, like, um, be it a summer camp, or be it the member association where all the members come together to cast a vote, or maybe just the Christmas party. Or you have a mailing list uh, where you just send a mail to all the members of the group, and H2B2 lets you do all that. This is useful for so many different types of organizations, uh, as long as you have uh, people that have roles in groups, you basically can use Hitopito. And uh, the, the best example right now is um, music, musicians who are like playing the trumpets and uh, percussions and everything. Stuff I don't know anything about, but they can still use this and have their musical get-togethers and festivi festivities um, organized with that. That's Well, it's really versatile, and I like the open-source approach on that one. Yeah, for sure. Now, speaking of open source, uh, you also mentioned that people can just use this like a hosted version, like a SaaS app of the tool itself. What What is the ratio between how many people like set it up themselves and just run it on their own infrastructure versus you uh, just hosting it for them? <laughs> Depends on how optimistic I am. Um, well, we don't know about everyone who uses it because it's open source. There are some people who just start out with a SaaS application because there is a very generic um, structure. You have like um, a global organization and some regional uh, groups and then your small group with the 10 people you have in your area. And that scales for many people um, or many organizations. But the more you want to customize things, um, the sooner you need to yeah, do your own wagon. That's what we call um, the... Um, organization instance. So you can have your own dedicated structure with the right roles because maybe you have veterans and the default one does not have veterans or alumni or something. I think we have around 10, 20 ish um, people, uh, organizations using the uh, SAS application heavily. Some just try it out and are basically. Um, empty after that. Uh, and we have 16 at the moment um, full-blown organizations that use this, from the scouts to the 
musicians with everything there. And uh, I know of, I think, two uh, instances, instances um, outside our organization who sometimes contribute some code, um, but we've never seen their code. Most use our services because we have the uh, we, we know how to tweak things. Ideally, everyone should do it, and some already do. Right. And then, is there also like a third option where maybe you just host it for them, but not as a SaaS app, but as like a totally separate, independent, custom thing? Or is that what you described before, kinda? Like as if like you're they're hiring you to host like an independent version of it that's like super customized. Well, some just come to us to help them get things set up. And we host things for them. That's um, one thing that happens. And uh, one organization uh, lately came to us. Um, they didn't want much, just a special kind of camp and their group structure, and that's it. It's a really small instance that we did. Others just ask for advice how to do that. So right. basically, yes. <laughs> Right. So earlier on, you mentioned that uh, your team initially wanted to use Ruby on Rails. Do you happen to know the reason that they chose that? Yes. Well, not the complete brain map of that, but um, the lead architect back then um, knew that Rails was, even 2012, a very good uh, framework to get things started, to prototype things, and also to have a reliable app. So speed to market was uh, one uh, aspect uh, and I also think uh, familiarity with uh, Ruby and Rails uh, was the other aspect but basically ease of use of the framework right so current day with the Rails setup do you want to go over maybe some of the features of Rails that you're using to build this application like do you happen to be using like action cable or anything else well we don't use action cable uh, although it's tempting um, well, maybe we do without knowing. Uh, we use Rails 6 right now, um, so we're somewhat current. Um, we use, uh, at some parts, uh, the uh, new text editor that comes, and I don't know if that uses Action Cable under the hood somewhere. That I just don't know, but that's just part of it. But we use the editor that uh, comes with it, um, and we use basically stock Rails. So... Uh, with Active Record, uh, of course, but those newer features um, didn't provide a use. Well, we hadn't, we don't have the use case for those yet. May come now that the tools are available, but for now, it's mostly stock Rails, the way it comes out of the box. Okay, and is that using the latest stable version at the at the time? I think so. I think six point one is still around the corner. I haven't checked, but we have. Um, a few months ago, uh, done the upgrade to uh, Rails 6 from Rails 4. That was, uh, we started out with um, just upgrading it to Rails 5 and along the way saw, well, it's no big obstacle. Let's go all the way to the future. And here we are. So uh, to my understanding, we are almost at the edge version. Nice. So when it came to that process of going from 4 to 6, you know, you mentioned you just dabbled a little bit with 5. How was that upgrade process? Did you go to like the four to five migration guide, do all the steps there, and then five to six? Yes, also the migration guides from Rails are really good. Um, so we just went over those versions. Um, it seemed easy enough to just go one step further, just not do one step to five um, and be on a version that's 
in a month deprecate it, but go all the way uh, when when you're already at it. Um, the funny thing about this was uh, when we merged uh, the branch, with, which brought us Rails 6, we merged the Rails 5 branch because <laughs> plans change, but naming doesn't. Now, earlier you mentioned kind of like one use case for using your services, just sending emails to a group of people. Do you happen to use uh, Action Mailer in Rails or no? Yes, yes. Um, that's, uh, that is used, I think, under the hood uh, just to send the mails. Well, in this concrete feature, um, the email comes in into a dedicated um, catch-all inbox um, where the where a delete delayed job, so the background worker, which is delayed job in our case, uh, fetches the mail or multiples, looks up the address and matches matches this to a mailing list where we just multiplex it then to all the recipients that are in this mailing list and you can unsubscribe and subscribe or put whole groups in there but the sending itself is then done with action mailer okay yeah it sounds like an interesting setup now does that go through uh you know something like a send grid or whatever transactional email service that you picked um no no we are uh, basically we have reinvented that um well we have it under control is maybe a better way to say it um in the only thing where we use something for mail is in the integration environments, uh, where we test things out, uh, where we send mails to MailTrap, so that you don't have to send um, or by accident or intentionally um, mails out to the public, uh, but can see the mails uh, in a nice and dedicated interface. But we didn't have the need so far to use something like MailGun. Um, Although at one point we pondered the idea to maybe migrate to that and didn't. Okay. Now going back to what you said before too about using delayed job, did you do some like pros and cons versus sidekick and other ones to, or was that just because the code, the code base has been around for so long, it was like pre-sidekick? I think it was pre-sidekick. Um, and also we understand the library good enough to uh, build on top. I think it should be rather easy to switch to sidekick. But there's no real benefit in the way we deploy things because um, it's fast enough the way it is. And with the deployment on the server side, which we will talk later, I think, um, it's scaling well enough so we don't need the sidekick setup. So speaking of jobs and using delayed job, do you happen to put all of your jobs through active job or no? I don't think so because it's um, so long. Uh, so so ingrained in the project that we just uh, use delay um, to send things later or just trigger a specific job and call that one. I think it's mostly that. Uh, we mostly trigger the jobs we defined with delay jobs with subclasses directly um, and don't use the active job interface there. Um, I think it doesn't make sense for us because we are we already have this all integrated. This active job interface is great if you're starting out and want to maybe switch out to a different backend. We invested a bit into delayed job with some plugins that we won't switch anytime soon. Okay. Do you want to go into maybe some of the plugins that you're using and like what type of problems that they solve? It's basically the Heartbeat plugin, um, which cleans up old um, 
workers, which are maybe stale or crashed, or um, if the job gets locked by delayed job, it's locked for a certain amount of time, and we want to speed that lock time up or reduce the lock time. Uh, and the Heartbeat plugin allows us to do that, uh, especially after a deployment. If the worker has been killed and didn't finish and locked something, we need to yeah, basically remove the lock so that the next worker can pick the job up. That's what the Heartbeat plugin does. Yeah, that sounds like a, a very useful plugin. It, it reduces the waiting time from four hours, I think, um, to a few minutes. <laughs> Pretty big difference there, for sure. Now, on the topic of like plugins or gems or anything like that, do you want to maybe go over some other interesting gems that are in your gem file that helped you build this app? I have the feeling that everything is pretty standard. Um, what we use is um, validates by schema, uh, which is interesting to me at least. Um, it adds automatically all the validations um, that you have in your database anyway. So if you, your database column is 100 characters long for whatever reason, um, it automatically adds this uh, into the uh, Rails code. And I just say validate by schema and have this picked up. Um, also for Boolean fields or uh, number of fields so that I don't need to rewrite everything I already wrote in the migration to configure the database. That's, I think, really good. What I personally also like is the paranoia gem that allows to have soft deletion. While people, if they are deleted um, in the application, they really are deleted, so we don't have any um, data lying around that's not ours. If you delete a group because maybe you mistyped the name or something, that group is only soft deleted um, so that you can recover it later if you want to. Um, that's really easy with paranoia. Right. That's pretty cool. Yeah, I like also the idea of that validation one where yeah, just defining your stuff in your schema RB and you're good to go. But I was curious because I haven't used that one firsthand. Does it also like like does it get really smart with well, with like check constraints and stuff? Like if you had a text area that was in between I don't know four and you know five thousand characters or something in a in a constraint, will it pick that one up or, or no? I don't know if it checks constraints directly. It um, I would say no, but I would need to check the source. And since I didn't write it, <laughs> um, I don't know exactly. Um, it does like the, well, the type you define on the database. That's reflected. That I know for sure. So if you, um, have a database that has a rich enough type system, you can get a lot of, mig uh, a lot of validations out of that. But it's basically just a safeguard so that we don't allow too long strings, which we would need to write a validation for anyway. Just return it automatically to the client. Um, that's really, it's like most plugins, developer laziness. <laughs> yeah. You could write all that by hand and um, why repeat yourself? Exactly. So speaking of like, you know, all these validations, uh, do you want maybe want to go over like, like how many models do you actually have? Like, you don't need to get like specifically, we have like 42 of them, but like, do you know like roughly the number of uh, models and controllers that your app might have? Just to get the scope of it. Yeah, it's uh, different if you look at the core or at the um, institution wagon. wagon. Um, in the core, we have like 86 models, uh, said my rake stats output. Um, 
for um, the scouts, there are uh, 275 more models, which are all there. Part of that is because it sounds like a lot, but um, every group type is a class, is a model, every role is a model, uh, and every extension of the core also, if in the models directory, counts as a model. So it's between 100 and 200, depending on what you look at. Um, and most of them are uh, just in the database. And then there are a lot of domain classes that are not directly persisted, but yeah, do things like handle how the cookie is looking or how encryption is done or how a mail is retrieved. All in all, we have um, 30,000 lines of code. I don't know if that's a metric that's useful to anyone, but um, it's easy to output. Now, does that code include tests or not? I forgot the output of... Well, it's funny because you call it rake stats, but you know you're like an old school Rails developer because <laughs> it's been renamed to Rails at some point. Yeah, okay. Um, well, I still type rake, although I know that uh, it's now wrapped into the Rails command. Um, but yes, I am long around. Uh, the total lines would be 95,000. Um, we have a pretty good test ratio. Um, although it's um, lines of code and total lines is different because not every end line in Ruby is counting as a line, as a line of code, because it's implicit, like the closing bracket. Yeah, so it's all in all around 100,000 lines, which leaves 70 lines. 70,000 lines of code, maybe? Yeah, it's a healthy size application. Yeah, it's um, good enough to get lost and good enough to find something. So it's a nice middle ground. <laughs> yeah, I'd be curious because, yeah, it is an interesting size. If you are an active de developer on that project, do you sort of kind of know where most things are? Like, I, I know you probably can't keep the whole code base in your head because that would be a lot, but like, do you generally know, like, you're not spending a lot of time getting lost, right? <laughs> well, I spend a lot of time getting lost, but uh, generally I'm on the right track after one or two steps. Um, so sometimes uh, it's not where I suspect things, but mostly I find my way around. It helps, of course, to have uh, Rails conventions where you just know how certain things are supposed to be written. I think that helps a lot, but I think the core concepts are just in my head, and then I use fuzzy search for the rest. Yeah, can't really beat a good control P if you happen to be using one of those editors that has that. <laughs> yes. So going back to the, you know this app being a SaaS app, do you also have like the billing code built into the core of the application, or do you build that into what you call like a wagon? Um, no. Well, hmm. the billing for the well, it's it's <laughs> it's hard. Um, so H2B2 also um, lately got the addition of invoices. So you can, just like the mailing list, you can also say send an invoice to your members of a group. May it be the fee for the next uh, year um, or maybe a, a call to donate something. So there is some uh, invoicing feature there, but it's not a billing feature per se. The billing for the SaaS app is, as far as I know, not handled by H2B2 itself. Um, and we don't have any link to Stripe or PayPal or anything because we don't handle the money directly. What we are uh, in the process of building is um, 
Well, if you have an invoice with a, some amount that people are um, asked or required to pay, then you can import the bank statements to match that. But that's basically all we have. I don't think that Hitobito should go into that uh, direction to be a full-blown banking application. Yeah, there's definitely uh, mechanisms in the world that handle that one, aka banks. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And um, it's also, we already have uh, a complete mailing list uh, feature in there. I don't want to do too much in Hitobito. There's, um, if you have, for example, if you want to have mails um, like MailChimp, then we don't integrate with MailChimp directly, but we can export the users and groups to MailChimp. That's maybe the closest we have with external services that we export those to another service. Okay. And is that something that you've developed personally, like these exporting uh, modules, I guess? Exports, yes. The MailChimp one I didn't do, um, but we have a lot of exports. Uh, one of our uh, instances has a complex reporting feature. So it's um, they um, are there for groups with disabilities or groups for people with disabilities. So they uh, offer teaching and training, how to deal with life, how to maybe um, learn some new features that you need with your maybe mental disability, for example. And for all these courses where there are um, people who are nursing and people who are attending and people who have disabilities and stuff, um, there's some controlling overhead. This controlling needs to be exported then to the uh, government that subsidizes all these things. So it's there's a lot of data aggregated in, in th those simple courses and events. Um, and this is then exported. And those I um, did, um, but for every client, for every instance, for every wagon, there are different requirements and different exports. And that's also the beauty of it, that it's very flexible and different. Right. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. And then as you pick up new clients with different requirements, you just add one more thing to the mix, I guess, right? Yes. And some things land in the core, like the MailChimp one. Uh, and some things are so specific that they are uh, with a client wagon. Okay. Now, for the core application itself, is it just your typical like Rails monolith, or do you have that one broken out into like you know mini components of the core? It is a monolith, um, and I enjoy it. Um, if you cl close enough, everything is a, a microservice architecture because you have a, a memcache running here and a database there, which are technically also your application. But the Rails core is just a monolith and just, well, the core is one repo, but we have these wagons that make it multi-repo monolith. I don't know if that's a term. Okay. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious. Is that core, like, is it a Rails engine, like just a gem, but not an engine? Like, how does it end up making its way as a piece of the wagon? Yeah, the wagons, maybe I should have said that at the beginning, wagons are the engines. So let's back up a bit. So the core is a Rails app. That's the main Rails app that you have. And normally engines are just plugins to your application, like device or something, which provide authentication. In our case, we use wagons as a wrapper around the Rails engines concept and invert the um, hierarchy a little. So you can extend 
um, the application that you see in the wagon. It's kind of backwards in a way. So like rails is in front and the wagons are behind. But the wagons are where the customer is sitting. I know not everything that breaks is an analogy, but bear with me. Um, Customer-specific code is in the wagon, which is an engine which is um, extending the Rails app, the core, in a way that it's more visible. The, the engine is more visible than the core. I don't know if that makes sense uh, to you. I hope it makes sense to Rails developers. Yeah, no, it makes sense for sure. And it's interesting that you found that type of solution to get it to the point where I would imagine, you know, you're really not changing anything about the core at all inside of these wagon engines or engine abstractions that you've created, right? Like all the customization just ends up in that in that wagon. Yes. And we have some extension points for, I mean, the easy part is to manipulate the view path so that the views are uh, taken from the uh, wagon. That's the easy part. That's just a config option. The other things are extended and included and with Ruby magic uh, done so that it is possible to just define the group structure, for example, only in the wagon and not in the core application. Okay. So I have a question around this whole process of like, what do you typically do to go from a feature is now inside of a specific wagon to like, hey, you know what, maybe we should roll this one into the actual core application. So is there like a process that your team goes through to determine when to do that? No, not there's no no written process. Um, the way I've seen it is, once we identified the same thing happening in multiple wagons, um, we try to, when we improve it the next time, um, pull it more and more into the core. Uh, one example is like salutation. You have um, people, and some t people want to be greeted informally. Uh, some by their last name, some by their first name. Um, and some wagons let you choose which salutation you want. And we are now in the process of moving this scattered uh, salutation code more and more into the core. Basically, whenever we work on this, we extend it in a way that it's more in the core and try to avoid those big rewrite things where we need to touch like 10 wagons uh, or 10 repositories just to move one line of code. Yeah, mostly developer discipline, not written written process. Okay, and and for that salutation code, does that happen to use that one gem that was extracted out of Basecamp like many years ago? I forget the name of it, but it like it can take a name as input and then produce many different types of output, like just the first name, first initial, just like the greeting or whatever. No, no, that's um, the concrete salutation that uh, the concrete salutations that are available are uh, currently still read from the wagon. So um, not to make things too easy for us, uh, each wagon can have different languages. Most support German, and but it could still be that the organization is in an area of Switzerland where there's French and German, or French, German, and Italian. Each wagon needs to define those salutations um, and the combinations that are applicable to their organization in their wagon. So it cannot be done completely in the core, just with the help of the core. Okay. Yeah, that definitely makes sense. And yeah, that's definitely a lot of bookkeeping to keep track of. Yeah. Different combinations. But the nice thing is, um, once you work in one wagon, you have one set of constraints. I mean, if, if I 
think about all the wagons uh, at some time, then I get a headache. But most of the time, I don't have to because it's so neatly isolated. Yeah, that's a really nice aspect of that one. So maybe now let's switch gears and talk a little bit more about the front end of the application. So it sounds like you have gone all in with the Rails way because Rails is awesome. Like, does that also follow suit to the front end as well? So it's like, you know, server render templates with sprinkles of JavaScript, or do you have things broken out into, you know, like an API backend with some JavaScript front end? Mostly um, HTML rendered uh, on the server. Um, some JavaScript, depending on the wagon and customer we have, it's more or less. Uh, personally, I prefer less. When we have JavaScript um, for like dropdowns uh, or so, then it's uh, packaged with uh, Webpacker into the front end. Um, so one of our front end savvy guys uh, actually coded that one up that uh, we have Webpacker with distributed uh, gem inclusion. I don't know how we did it. It now works, uh, and I don't have to think about this. But we have we don't have uh, like a front end with view or something. We don't go down that route because mostly um, it's an information site with where you you don't interact that active or well not it's not an it's it's not a high interaction site where you have like Google Maps where you drag and drop anything. It's more like the Information you see, think about it, act upon it. So there's there's no need for a full-blown JavaScript front-end. Right. So maybe just to paint a picture about your app then, is it mainly just like, you know, forms and like tabular data that you can like sort and filter on maybe? Yes. Um, although there's a lot of tables, of course, because lists of people, which have lists of groups, which are, uh, and so on. Um, it's a lot of tables. Um, it is a rather simple app if you look at it at first glance, um, and it should be because it should not be confusing. So there are uh, forms and if needed, they are broken into several steps, but there's nothing too complex going on. And if there needs to be something complex, um, then we put it into a wagon to not um, disrupt the workflow too much for everyone. Okay. And then some of that complexity with forms, do you have things set up to where it's like, the user chooses some option from a select box, and then that alters uh, maybe another form component to have like dynamic content. You know, you have seen that before, like like narrowing down choices with multiple select boxes, stuff like that. Um, yeah, um, we do that when it makes sense and makes the interface really better. So far, this is seldomly the case because we have some filtering mechanisms, but for now, it's enough to choose a few items from. Uh, like a date or um, maybe a status column and just hit search and you get your updated list. Okay. In terms of other types of filtering, do you also do like full text search as well or no? Yes, we do. We use uh, Thinking Sphinx for that. Uh, well, Thinking Sphinx is the Rails plugin. Sphinx is the search server um, that just extracts everything from the database and is then queried. But if you want to run on your own, you don't have to use Sphinx. Then it's uh, searched just with an SQL-like query. So it's both is present. So is that functionality brought to you by thinking Sphinx? Like, does it give you that abstraction to where if Sphinx, the backend, isn't available, it just turns them over into SQL queries? No. Um, I don't think that they would implement that. It's uh, We have a, a check if we have a Sphinx running. 
and can reach it. And if we can, then we use the uh, thinking Sphinx and Sphinx backend. Uh, and if not, um, maybe even if the Sphinx server died for some reason, then we just use the SQLI query. Or in the um, case of the SAS application, where Sphinx cannot um, differentiate between the different tenants, we just don't use Sphinx at all and just have the SQL-like. So I'm guessing, like, I haven't used Sphinx firsthand. I mean, I've used it, maybe dabbled with it a long time ago, but does it not have a way to, to like, filter on a specific field type so you can do tenant filtering? Yes, um, it can filter, but the way we do the tenants um, is with different databases. And ah. it's hard to have uh, one index um, with different coming from different databases. I think the indexer was the problem back then. We looked at it shortly, uh, well, not too extensively, uh, and figured out, okay, that doesn't work for us in this scenario. So uh, we just went ahead, uh, did a few performance checks, and it was fast enough because in the SAS application, you also have smaller organizations. So it's uh, working rather fine. Nice. So when it came to going with separate databases for each setup here, did you weigh like the pros and cons versus doing that versus using like Postgres schemas versus just using like a foreign key? I like how you assumed that I use Postgres. It's MySQL. Um... Ah, sorry about that. <laughs> no, uh, we are, uh, you are looking into the future. We are um, planning to switch to Postgres at some point in the future. Uh, it's not uh, too easy, but uh, back in the day, it was easier to use uh, MySQL because of the packages and operating systems back then, CI service and so on. Uh, and now we have MySQL and Thinking Sphinx. Once we migrate uh, to Postgres, we will maybe use um, the built-in text, full text search. For the multi-tenancy, um, since we are using MySQL, uh, we chose the way of using separate databases, which are, ironically, rather close to Postgres schemas, uh, even in the uh, query syntax. But yeah, for now, it's different databases, which makes restore in the in error cases uh, easier or backups easier also. Right. So I'd be curious, like, since they're in their own separate databases, do you happen to, did you write like a lot of custom tooling to deal with database migrations or is it kind of just like looping over each tenant and then this running migrations normally just because, you know, against that one database? Uh, no, uh, we had the uh, luck that there is a Ruby gem uh, apartment that handles all that. Uh, so you can say uh, in apartment, um, take the subdomain and choose a database by that name. And we have some checks for, so you cannot have a MySQL subdomain because that name is already taken and some others. And that handles all this connection setup so that when you come from a certain domain, your connection, database connection is already set to the right database. And that works uh, also for Postgres. So once we switch, this will just work. Maybe needs to be configured differently, but it supports both. Right. Yeah, I like that phrase that you said about being lucky that the apartment gem exists because, yeah, it seems like that would be a hard thing to keep track of uh, just doing it manually. Like, I would imagine there's a lot of edge cases and a lot of things could go wrong. Like, if you accidentally select the wrong tenant and now, like, tenant A is seeing tenant B's data by accident. Basically, I'm lucky. <laughs> <laughs> I, um, yeah. 
just as as you say it uh, in my head, it goes like, oh well, this edge case and this edge case, and then I'm just lucky I don't have to do it. Yeah. Now it sounds like you're about to also be. I don't want to say lucky, but it's like you know, if you get to switch over to Postgres in the future, you know, dropping all of that Sphinx code. I don't know about you, but like deleting code is one of my favorite things to do. Like, are you looking forward to being able to cut out all that Sphinx code? In a way, yes. Um, yes, I would like to remove the dependency and have the custom index code moved somewhere else. But Postgres full text search is in and of itself also very complex. So uh, all great magic comes as a, as a cost. And there is... Um, Pros and cons, I don't know. Maybe we even keep swings if uh, we decide that it's not worth it to drop swings for that because it's too tightly integrated. Because swings also can query Postgres as well. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, if it's working really well and you're used to it, uh, yeah, keep it up. Um, and also, I know for a fact that Sphinx can do infix search. So you can just um, search for, I don't know, reduction. And it will find running in production. Um, but SQL-like queries cannot do that this easily or only with overhead. And I think that the full text search can do this to extent, but maybe not fully. So Sphinx is in some parts more powerful. In some parts it isn't maybe. I think we have to weigh the pros and cons when we get there. When we really see which version of Postgres we have then and what's then available. Right. Yeah, maybe set up some test queries and data and just compare the results between the two and make a decision based on that. Yeah, or maybe just see the queries that are currently taken to the Sphinx daemon um, and run them against the uh, new setup and see how, what reality really does with the queries. Maybe we are wrong and people don't need infix search at all. Most people search from the beginning of the word, but some people don't. Now, speaking of search and end users doing their thing, do you also track like empty search results? Like if someone searches for something and there's zero records, do you get notified that? Because it could be like, well, you know, maybe we should have that feature or something. No, no, so far we don't. Um, if there is zero search results, we just uh, show an empty search page. Well, with the so maybe... uh, hint that there are no results, of course. <laughs> right. Yeah, not just going to show them like an empty, un templated page. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe now we can talk a little bit more about the rest of your tech stack. So you mentioned MySQL. I think I, I think I heard you say memcached in there at least once. Do you want to go over like any other components of your app that we haven't talked about yet? Yeah, so um, all in all, the application is um, Rails as the starter, then background jobs with delay job, I already mentioned. The database is MySQL. There is um, Sphinx as search and memcache uh, for Rails view caching to keep things a little more speedy. Then we have in our setup also some um, metrics exporter that um, just exports the queries, but that's not really part of the app. That's part of our hosting setup that we use to monitor the app. So that's not needed, but present. So when it comes to the memcache setup, do you want to give an example of certain things that you might be caching? One thing I uh, lately saw was the translated labels for forms. So, um, or also um, form parts that are repeated. Because the label translation lookup uh, wasn't too fast when we 
back uh, checked, um, we just cache that one. Or um, also, we are thinking about um, caching the whole uh, search result for um, maybe a course or something that doesn't change that frequently, uh, and we only need to change the amount of applications we got because the date doesn't change that often. Uh, we could change, we can cache that, but we're not. How do I put it? We're not overutilizing memcache. Okay. And uh, when it comes to something like the web server, do you happen to be using Puma, Unicorn, or something else? Uh, right now, we are using uh, Puma uh, and Nginx in front. Back in the day when it just was on a server, um, it was Passenger. It doesn't make sense for us to have Passenger now as we are um, in Docker right now and have a scaling solution outside of the web server. So we don't need a scaling solution in a scaling solution. So that's why we omitted Passenger, which is otherwise great, um, but I wouldn't use it inside a Docker container because all the benefits are gone, basically. Yeah, that makes total sense. Yeah, I'm looking forward to definitely talking about the deployment side of things. But one last question about the development side. You just mentioned that you're using Docker. Do you also use Docker in development or is it just in production? I don't. Um, because I don't like Docker, um, but we provide a, a development repo, um, which is also in the next to the other repos, um, so that uh, new hires or the product manager or developers who just want to use Docker and the exact right MySQL version can use that. There's a Docker Compose uh, with everything and the detailed README, which also started um, as an external contribution. Also, this is uh, open source. Yay. <laughs> nice. Yeah, one of the wins. Other people can contribute to your code base. Yeah. As long as it's things that you like. Yeah, and the thing is, um, you can use Docker for development. You don't have to. I choose not to, uh, along with all the pain of keeping things in sync. Um, others um, choose to use Docker and have the pain of Docker. But it works for both parties. Right. In either case, there's pain somewhere. But I guess in your case, like, I mean, we didn't go over this specifically, but do you work on this project full-time? Uh, currently, yes. As I'm in a company that does client work, uh, it could happen that some big contract comes along and uh, I need to split my time. Um, or maybe some other project wants a week of my time. But generally, I work on this full-time and enjoy it. <laughs> yeah, I only brought that up because... If you're just primarily working on one application, then suddenly, you know, having your dev box siloed into like eight different Ruby projects or whatever, it's not that much beneficial, right? If you just have one project running, because then you can just have one copy of MySQL with the specific version for the app, etc. So far, I haven't had a problem with um, local setup of different versions of everything. Postgres is really good in that regard, and MySQL good enough. So um, for now, the uh, a side effect is that the uh, Hitobito app works on MySQL 5.7 and MySQL 8 because after the last distribution upgrade, I got MySQL 8 and didn't feel like using Docker for that. So I just upgraded everything so that it works with both. But nice. um, yeah, that's uh, maybe not the normal part. <laughs> no, it's fine. Interesting that you're using MySQL 5.7 because it's funny because I do contract work and I usually use Postgres, but... They just upgraded from 5.6 because apparently on AWS, like that's being deprecated very soon. Um, I think the Red Hat image that we use, the newest one was 5.7. I don't think we will make the switch to 8. When we switch the database, um, 
we will just switch the complete database to Postgres, I think. But maybe I'm wrong and we just use the next one. Right. Well, hopefully it's not too bad of an upgrade to go from MySQL to Postgres, even though it is going to be a pretty big change. But those things you never know. Yeah, we'll until see. Until you actually do it. <laughs> next time I can read the future, I will maybe go into stock marketing or something. Nice. So now let's switch gears and talk a lot about how you have this thing deployed. So uh, let's begin with the cloud hosting provider that you chose. Do you want to go over uh, where you're hosting all of this stuff? Yes. Um, so we are, as I said, we're using Docker. Um, because you don't use Docker on your own, it's Kubernetes. And we use the um, OpenShift flavor of Kubernetes. OpenShift is the uh, Red Hat um, branded version that adds a GUI and some new concepts on top of Kubernetes. Um, we host this uh, on Apuyo. That's um, a Swiss provider of uh, hosted Red Hat OpenShift. And um, we do this, well, it's, it's a joint venture between our company and a uh, pure hosting company. And that's basically OpenShift as a service. Um, they don't offer a free tier, sadly. Um, but the cheapest one um, is rather affordable with around uh, 50 US dollars, roughly translated, a month if you fully utilize it. The instances we have are running on dedicated nodes because most organizations we have have more than a few hundred people. Um, so just to have the, the scale in mind why we have dedicated nodes, um, there are some organizations that have 110,000 people in 8,000 groups or 90,000 people in 26,000 groups or one has 200 people in 12 groups, but that's maybe an outlier. Um, so just for the scale of this, and also because uh, we have other apps there, we have a dedicated um, OpenShift node, or several dedicated OpenShift nodes for that, with um, several gigabytes of RAM in total. I think we use uh, 90 gigabytes of RAM for um, 16 instances. So. If you want to imagine how this works and runs, just imagine it's a Kubernetes with a nice GUI on top. You can still use uh, the cube control um, and all the tooling there, but it's, uh, we have also have a click interface for for when you are in mouse mode. Okay, because I have not used OpenShift firsthand. But I mean, at the end of the day, are you still writing like Kubernetes manifest files? Like, are you just in there in the woods writing YAML? <laughs> Uh, somewhere it, it was we're all YAML engineers uh, right now. <laughs> so yes, um, when we are configuring that, it's mostly YAML. Um, so everything I mentioned earlier, the database, Rails, Memcache, and so on, those are all uh, Kubernetes deployments. And OpenShift adds some syntax so that when a new build is done, so OpenShift builds uh, build the Docker image for me, and when a new image is there from this build, it triggers the deployment and recreates uh, everything and pulls up the new image in the deployment. Interesting. Also super interesting to hear that you are running your database in the cluster because I have been using Kubernetes recently, but I have not run any stateful applications yet on it. Do you want to maybe give some, uh, like a rundown on how that's been for you? Or does OpenShift make that easier? Um, it doesn't make it. Well, it could make it easier if we um, 
have the right if if we invest the time. Right now, we just have one um, container with a database, which has some volumes attached and so on, and it's not a multi-master setup with everything. So to make it fully scalable and movable with all the benefits of uh, Kubernetes, uh, I would need to add some engineering um, to have this multi-master setup with MySQL, and there's some headache that I just don't want to go into. So right now we have um, just one database, and when we upgrade this, it's just shortly down, and then it's up again. And our uh, Rails container and delay job, um, they have a safeguard at the start to wait for the database. So when we start everything, Rails is maybe faster to boot, but the first thing it does is wait for the database. It doesn't crash, it just waits. And then MySQL is up, then it connects, checks if the migrations have been run, and um, then continues to just boot and display the pages. Yeah, it's, it's seldom that we it's seldom that we really pull MySQL down or restart it. Right. Yeah, it sounds like the MySQL component is basically always up and running, and then it's the Rails apps that are restarting based on code deploys. Mm-hmm. Correctly. When it comes to that waiting component, do you use like init containers with Kubernetes to kind of ensure that things are ready before the Rails app starts? Yes. Um, I didn't know about init containers before we introduced this feature. <laughs> Um, but we have init containers. Um, well, hold on. Do you want to first give us a TLDR and what that is for listeners out there? Okay, yeah. Uh, because if I don't know, maybe you don't know. Um, so uh, um, OpenShift. I don't know if this is Kubernetes as well. Um, in OpenShift, you have pods. Your pod is basically a wrapper for a container or several containers. So the Rails container, Rails pod has an Nginx container and a Rails container which has the Puma app. To prepare the container, there you can have an init container before, so that um, when the pod starts the container, it first starts the init containers, can be several, and those can maybe copy a certificate or copy the assets from the Rails public directory to the Nginx container, or in this case, wait for the database. There's uh, a Ruby gem that we developed. Uh, it's called uh, Bleib, which is German for stay, uh, which is what you tell a dog if you if it should stay with you and not run away. So you say, okay. stay with me. And then when the database is there, when the light is green, you can run and take me with you. Yeah, I think it's the Ruby way of having funny names. Um, and the init containers uh, run every time the app starts. So if anything catastrophic happens uh, and one node goes down and OpenShift redistributes the um, deployments and scales it back up on a different machine, then it can happen that the database is not yet up, but Rails is up. And then this init container just waits for the database to be up so that we don't have an error. Uh, we just have nothing. We just wait until it's there, and usually it's there within a few seconds. Nice. For the migrations, um, I recently introduced a little trick that uh, we have another deployment that basically does nothing. The main container just is while true sleep infinity. That's very low on, on resources because it does nothing. 
But the init containers before that, they um, wait for the database and migrate the database. And everything else waits just for the database to be migrated. So they, um, when there are uh, database migrations, I just make a new build, which contains these new um, migrations. That's converted into an image. That triggers the deployments. That's the deployment for the background worker, the deployment for the Rails app, and the deployment for the migration code. And the migration deployment then has these init containers that takes care of running the migrations or not. So in most cases, because we don't change the database all the time, the database wants to be migrated, but the Rails is already seeing, ah, wait, no, everything's fine. I can start. And the migrating deployment is still trying to migrate and also seeing that there's nothing to be done. This additional deployment um, is really a lifesaver for big uh, installations. For example, the SAS application, because there's not one database to be migrated, but yeah, well, a hundred. And that takes time because context switch. Yeah. So I'm curious, like how long does it actually take to run through uh, a typical migration on that many, that many tenants? I know it's going to depend on what's being migrated, but let's just say like the average. Ah, average. Um, so if it's just one column to be added, can take several minutes. Once I had a, uh, where we had too few, too big spaces between deployments um, or releases, but uh, to say, it took. Well, the downtime was, I think, five hours. But until everything was working again, it was one and a half days, cool. because the migrations um, were not that reliable. And after that, we decided we put Postgres in our schedule because uh, Postgres has transactions around structural changes. MySQL does not. Mm. I mean, I'm not laughing because it's like a funny thing that happened, but it's interesting how that turns out where it's like, you know, a day and a half, it's like time to look into a different database. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, um, well, since, since I'm German, I had a more stern words for that, um, uh, which may or may not have encompassed yelling. Um, no, it was, I, I was not really satisfied with the performance MySQL brought, uh, on that particular day. I mean, it's a, it's a fine database for most things. Uh, for our use case, it turns out it's not the ideal one. And I cannot put it more politely. <laughs> right. So going back to your database migration strategy, it's interesting because I happen to be working on some client work right now. And like, that's something I'm currently solving now. Like, how do you run database migrations at scale? Uh, where at scale could just mean, you know, having two replicas of your app running, right? More than one. I ended up coming up with a solution as well. I'd be curious to hear what you think of it. And like maybe for listeners out there, like, is there a better way? So I love the idea of using the init container, but it's also like just using that by itself is kind of not the best, right? Because if you have five copies of your app running, then technically five init containers are going to run. You know, DB migrate is going to be run five times. Now, Rails at this point is probably pretty stable with those migrations being locked and, you know, you don't have to worry about that, but there is like other things you can do to protect yourself so that it only runs on one of those pods. And then every other pod just waits until uh, the one migration is finished before becoming healthy and, and being started. So I'd be curious when you were researching this, did you run into like, I don't know this one blog post that I happened to look at, but it was like, it uses the init containers, but then you also create a Kubernetes job. And that job just runs the database migration, right? Like Rails DB migrate. 
But then the interesting thing is in the init container, you also run a kubectl and you just watch to make sure that uh, the state of that job is complete or not. If it's not complete, then yeah, the other pods just won't start because it needs to be complete before they start. So basically it's like a pretty reasonable way, I think, to ensure that your migrations only get run once and then all the pods come up uh, after it's been finished. Curious to hear your thoughts on that one. Yeah, um, that's precisely the, um, that has been the trigger for um, the, the change that I just did. Maybe it's, uh, I talked too, too fast about this. Um, the, well, if you, Rails behaves if you have two simultaneous migrations. Um, the first one runs, the second errors out with an exception, migrations already running. So you have just errors in your error reporting. That's the best part. It could also happen that they don't check and run really and break everything. Uh, we ended up with this um, specific deployment that's only once there. So it's not the deployment rails, it's deployment migrations. It's completely separated. The rails application waits for the database to be, to be migrated. And the delay job worker waits for the database to migrate it. But the migrations deployment that does nothing in of itself, um, has these init containers and the migrations are only run there. And because that's only scaled to one, it only runs once. Uh-huh. Um, we did, um, in another setup, we did it with a job because it's semantically more sound. I have to agree, um, because you say, now do this, and Kubernetes job is exactly that. Turns out with the triggers that OpenShift provides, that when there is a build ready, there is a, um, a concept called image streams. So the ready build image is pushed into the image stream, and then from this image stream, the deployments are triggered and refreshed and get a new, uh, restarted again. So in Hitobito, we can just build, tag the uh, new image, on, and when the um, image with this tag is present, then the deployments for Rails, delayed job, and migrations are refreshed, redeployed, and only the deployment, migra- only the migrations deployment uh, executes the migrations. That way I can leave the uh, migra- uh, the deployment around and don't have to worry about job management because I don't want to have kube control in my container. Right. Yeah, because that does depend on pulling down kubectl from, I think it's like Bitnami or whatever, and then running the command there. So not having to do that is uh, actually quite nice. Yeah. That's a cool setup. But it, it took us some time to get there. Um, right. And I don't think it's the best solution. As I said, semantically, I like the idea of a job for that. It just happens that deployments are easier to manage because of the triggers that OpenShift provides. Right. So I'm curious too, on the topic of OpenShift, is there a, like room to have a tool like Helm is there as well? Like I'm curious because, you know, Helm charts to me at least are pretty useful just for templating out my YAML files. Like, do you happen to use that or does OpenShift provide something else? We don't use Helm. We use Customize for our um, management. Customize um, works with a base you have, and then overlays, which um, if you combine all those bases and patches and resources, um, provide then 
or yield then a complete YAML configuration for your setup. Um, I don't know enough about Helm to contrast this, but I think it's similar in the um, result that you get. So in Customize, we basically spell everything out. There's no uh, repetition over that that uh, maybe YAML provides. If you have anchors and keys, you can do some YAML magic. Um, but other than that, it's just merging of YAML uh, in this tree structure that your directories have. Right. Yeah, I haven't used Customize firsthand, but it is definitely like, you know, between Customize and Helm, at the end of the day, it's like they're just producing Kubernetes manifest YAML that it can run in your cluster, in abstraction, basically. Basically, uh, we do a lot of work to not write YAML, and in the end, we still do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So speaking of YAML, like, I don't know, you don't need to say exactly how many lines of code or whatever, but like, how, how many lines of YAML do you think you've written to get that Kubernetes setup working? Ah, uh, I haven't checked that one. I could right now, but I don't know exactly. I would guess um, upper hundreds, lower thousands, but I can't give a more concrete estimate. Right. Yeah, I think that's good enough for sure. It is kind of interesting though, right? Because even if it's like, let's say 750 lines of YAML, that's a lot of YAML, but you're also getting a pretty good outcome from that, right? It's like a way for you to run a distributed application, both stateful and stateless. And since it's all text and code, you can put it in a Git repo and revert and go back to the way uh, it was working last week. <laughs> yeah. So speaking of that, though, do you actually keep your Kubernetes code within the Rails code base, or do you have that broken out into a different repo? Uh, we have it in a different repo. Um, we still have it internally for our uh, company, but since all the secrets are... Um, pushed into OpenShift or our secrets management, so not in the customized setup, um, we could also open source that one. Right now, it wouldn't be that big of a deal anymore. It was at the beginning, but now if one, we just uh, truncate the history, then we could be sure that there are no secrets spilling out. Yeah, that could be really cool. Although maybe, well, I don't know if it would affect your business model or whatever, but if, like, if you give someone not quite as easy as like a deploy to Heroku button, but like the whole infrastructure setup to where they can replicate that and host it themselves. Is that something that you think about or no? Um, I don't think about this, but since everything is open source, uh, including the SaaS application, that's the core plus the tenants plus a generic wagon, which is all open source, um, you can just take it and um, prove that our business model is working. So <laughs> um, if that's what you want, you can do that. Um, mostly we're not worried about this because uh, people don't come to us because we're the only one, because we we know how to do this. Okay. Speak. By the way, speaking of like open source in general and, and potentially code sharing and contributing, uh, which license did you go with? Uh, we went with the AGPL, I think version 3, is it? Um, that's the version of uh, GPL that allows you to, or empowers you to have the source code if you once visited the site. So uh, if you go to hitobito.com right now, you have the right to get all the source code of Hitobito, which you can on GitHub. Right, okay. And then, yeah, AP, AGPL also means that if I were to take your application and host the SaaS version of, a, of it myself, like not on your platform, if I were to do any modifications to that code, I also need to publish that code publicly, right? Yes. Which is like a really big deciding factor for a SaaS app because it means someone can't just take your SaaS app, steal it, 
privately run it, make all this money, and then contribute nothing back to your code base. Like at the very least, they need to contribute back the code that they've done to their platform. Yes, and I've seen people do that. But in the end, if you see what you get for free, I think it's only fair to ask uh, to give your three lines of contributions back. Yeah, no, I'm not, I'm not against that. I think it's a good license for that type of thing for sure. So going back to your setup now, do you want to go over what your deployment process looks like from end to end? Like deploying or just developing a feature, maybe in a feature branch and then pushing it up somewhere? Like how does it make its way to production? Yeah, so uh, after everything is reviewed and the feature branch merged and um, our CI is green, so it's uh, GitHub Actions for now, then um, we can craft a release. It sounds more complicated than it is because now it is a shell script. Um, basically, we um, I will take the uh, scouts as an example. So the scouts um, have the core of H2B2, they have their scout wagon, and they have the youth wagon because they are a youth organization. And those three repos need to be composed. So there's a um, composition repository. Um, and that needs, uh, this is basically a collection of submodules. Those need to be uh, updated. Also pull translations, uh, um, because everything could be in multiple languages. Uh, we uh, update the release number. We change the change log during that release. Commit all that update the composition repo with the correctly tagged version of all the core, the uh, wagon uh, of the scouts and the youth wagon, and then push all that to GitHub. And that's the release, basically. And that's all uh, a script, because I was too lazy to do all that and also forgot uh, sometimes <laughs> pulling translations or so. Um, then when the composition repository is updated, uh, I basically click a button in Jenkins. That button does also not very much. It instructs OpenShift to start a build. And once the build is done, so it, it waits the 10 minutes, 15 minutes maybe, mostly 10 minutes um, for this to be ready with all the assets pulled in, compiled, webpacked and stuff. Then the new images get tagged from latest to release and then OpenShift already takes over and deploys the new versions. The deployment is currently set to recreate so it shuts everything down that has a new image and pulls it back up. So the Rails delay job, forget the migrations uh, deployment, just get the new image or spun up. All with basically one script um, and a click of a button. Yeah, that is really nice. And I haven't gotten too deep into the woods in, in things like recreate. Does that delete first, create after, or create first, delete after? Scale down, scale up. So it's first deleted and then uh, scaled up again. Okay, so there is like a period of time where everything is down just for however long it takes for the pods to come back up, right? Yes. and. That's why we are um, working also on smaller images. So, for example, the Docker images, um, right now they are still uh, Red Hat Ruby images, sourced to image something that OpenShift provides. And we are switching to a pure Docker file setup that's easier to understand, easier to debug, and also yields um, smaller images if you use small Debian Ruby image. 
and not the full Red Hat system, which is capable and can do a lot of things, but we only want a small thing. So it's not as small as Alpine, but um, a Debian minimal is much smaller in size, so the image pull is smaller, so the downtime is in the space of, well, many seconds, few, few minutes. And since the migrations are run separately, um, the Rails container is sometimes even up and running uh, before the migrations check that they don't have to do anything. So if there are no migrations, downtime is maybe a minute or two. Okay. And yeah, I'm a huge fan of using the Debian slim base model where, yeah, it's not too big at all. Don't need to worry about like weird Alpine versus Debian, you know, not incompatibilities, but weirdness, let's just call it that. <laughs> but when you move to this new model where you're controlling your own Dockerfile, do you think at some point you might build these image, images in CI and then push them up to, I guess, OpenShift maybe has a registry or no? Um, OpenShift built itself. So um, OpenShift includes a Docker builder and their own registry. So OpenShift is really a huge turnkey solution. Um, and therefore, uh, I mean, with all things Red Hat, you get great support, great software, and enterprise tech. Um, you get what you pay for. It's really great. So we just um, push the code, start a build, and everything is handled by OpenShift. Yeah, that sounds like a really awesome setup. I'm curious, though, earlier you mentioned that, you know, the big red button that you push on Jenkins. Do you want to go over what made you choose Jenkins? And, like, could that step be in GitHub Actions at some point or maybe in, Red, in OpenShift? Like, I'm curious how that fits in in the middle. As with all things, uh, historical reasons. Since we have, well, if I were a solo developer, things would be vastly different. But since I'm part of a great company with a um, great uh, admin department, um, we had Jenkins um, and we had knowledge around Jenkins and we knew that Jenkins could talk to OpenShift and we just needed a few tokens. So basically those were the tools that were proven and lying around. And so far um, Jenkins is the just the orchestrator. I like that um, deployments, production deployments are somewhat internal. The config could be open source from my point of view, but the actual deployment um, is something I wouldn't put in the hands of GitHub because I need to upload the tokens there and it's like handing over the keys to your car um, to someone you maybe you've seen several times but don't trust fully. Um, I like our Howard Jenkins setup, um, especially since handoffs between Jenkins and OpenShift are in a way that Jenkins just triggers OpenShift and OpenShift does the real things. So Jenkins is a very slim layer across that. Yeah, I think that's actually a really cool setup too, right? Because it's like, you still get to use GitHub Actions to do all the, you know, pre-work of deploying, right? Like you mentioned your whole pipeline there. I would imagine running test suites and I don't know, do you happen to use like RuboCop as well or no? Uh, it's a part of the test suite. Um, not as intensively as I wish, but um, well, it's all a work in progress, right? Yeah. But it's cool because it's like all these CI steps are in GitHub Actions and Jenkins is kind of just the, the middleman for one little tiny component of just moving things into production into OpenShift. I'm curious, do you have that Jenkins server running in like some different cloud provider? Like where is that hosted or maybe even a managed one? 
That is our internal Jenkins. Um, I think it's hosted with CloudScale. That's also the um, backend of Apuyo. Um, that's a Swiss CloudScale cloud provider. So far, we are really happy with them. Um, and whenever we need to for for um, data confidential confidentiality uh, reasons host something in Switzerland, we chose them. Um, if it's not really important, we could also run this somewhere else. Um, but Hitobito is completely hosted there. And all our internal infrastructure also. Um, so it's, yeah, just inside the country for now. Nice. Yeah, I think it's also really cool to use that as you're deploying box, essentially, versus you just setting that up on your laptop. Because then it's like you become a single point of failure. If you get hit by a bus, then suddenly no one can deploy stuff. I recently learned that a better way to uh, for, for the bus number is the lottery number. Um, oh, yeah. If I suddenly win in the lottery, then um, they don't want to uh, figure out my laptop config. Um, but, yeah, it's... Um, since since I'm with Puzzle, uh, I value the benefits of open source and sharing things, because uh, well, uh, open source is one of the core um, values of Puzzle, and so we share all Hitobito. That's where uh, why we started out open source with Hitobito, uh, and also if I have some script to run this, I can just put it in the operations repo and. Yeah, other colleagues can use it, and potentially one day, um, it's nothing against it in the world. People can use it, but uh, for now, there's too many secrets in this one repo. But the idea is still there to open source things, to share things, to keep the um, lottery number um, at a bearable cost. <laughs> yeah, it's also kind of neat too because it's like, yeah, what that separate Jenkins server. It's always an interesting problem where. You know, if you happen to have like two or three different services running, like if you went the full CI/CD route inside of like a GitHub Actions or something, it's like each of those services or even one service like you have now, like it would need to have the capabilities to know about like the Kubernetes setup to be able to run these whatever commands to deploy it. I know you're using like OpenShift, but you know in that regard you'd be running maybe making like a, an API call to OpenShift. But yeah, I don't know. It, it's a tricky one, right? Because it's like it comes down to like you would want your deployment code in your app code if you didn't have a like third party place to actually do the deployment stuff. Yes, yeah, we have. Um, maybe if you look into the code repository in a month or two or half a year, then maybe we have already the uh, Docker file with everything you need there. All that I said about the deployment is basically optional. That's the nice part. So. Um, you don't have to pull translations. You don't have to update the changelog if you want to. Um, so if someone else decides, yeah, I want to try this out, even on my little box somewhere at home, maybe a maybe laptop, then you wouldn't need all that. And that's the part I like, I like most. But if you want to have the big thing with special configurations like auto scaling, delayed jobs, um, I don't know if Kubernetes uh, offers those. But that's another OpenShift. Um, maybe it's an OpenShift uh, thing, uh, like an autoscaler. So um, that you, if delayed job has too much load, it just ramps up and uh, starts new uh, pods um, to, to cover the load. 
but that's everything's optional at that point. You can run it small, but you can run it big. Right. By the way, on the topic of the Kubernetes stuff, this just reminded me to ask you one more question about that. When it comes to the Rails app or even delayed job, do you have resource limits in your Kubernetes YAML setup? Yes. Yes, uh, we have. Um, simply to uh, allow the Kubernetes cluster to pick the right node to um, start the pod on so that they know um, this one is requesting um, one core. Mostly not, but um, this is requesting half a core, but can go up to one core, and then the Kubernetes cluster can decide where and which node to start the pod to not overcommit too much. I think there is, because the limit the requests are rather low, and the requests uh, the limits are real high limit before it's uh, killed. We overcommit a bit because most of the time we don't need all the uh, resources, but it's definitely there in every deployment to uh, give the information to the cluster. Okay. Yeah, because it's really interesting, right, about how Kubernetes gives you such fine green control over those limits. And I'd be curious to hear, like, how did you go about from not knowing what resources your app uses to figuring out, like, yes, using, you know, this amount of memory and this amount of CPU are the correct limits? Was there, like, a process that you did to get there? Like, maybe running the app for a week and then looking at the max CPU and memory or whatever? No. Um, basically, when it crashes too often because of out-of-memory kills, um, we raised the limits slightly. And the beginning, I think we just went with our guts and were roughly right. I think we started the app, looked at the passenger, uh, because before we were using passenger, uh, so we could uh, look in the passenger status, uh, how much memory a process would take. And from that, we could make an estimate. But we didn't make an exact measurement, like run for a while and then reduce or something. That we didn't do. Right. That makes sense. And yeah, it's definitely a good idea to like over-provision that stuff just by a little bit. Because it would be funny in a bad way if delay job just uses like two more megs of memory versus your max or whatever. And suddenly it gets restarted. Yeah. Well, if it uses more memory, uh, it's not two megabytes. But uh, thank you for assuming. Um, <laughs> it's yeah, well, we the delay jobs have have a little more uh, because of big exports, but most things are in the end uh, CPU bound, and that's uh, handled easily by the uh, Kubernetes cluster. When you have too much going on, a too high CPU utilization, it can just spin up another uh, replica, and then you have two Rails instances or three delay jobs, uh, or what have you. Right. So I guess on average, like how many do you end up running in your day to day of both the web server and delay job? You mean how many pods? Um, yeah, like number of replicas. Mostly, it's one Rails instance, instance, and one to two. Delayed jobs. Delayed job is auto-scaling a bit because we have uh, the mail check every minute. So every minute, um, Hitobito reaches out for the inbox, checks if there are mails to be multiplexed to the clients or to the recipients. Um, and if you have an export while um, there is this mail check, then the CPU rises so slightly that it scales up a second and then there can then there are two and after a while it's scaled down. So it's 
together three pods, maybe, on average, maybe two. Depends. Also, um, some, some organizations are heavily run by volunteers, so you can't even say, ah, it's dying down in the night. Um, some instances are even easier to deploy during the day because all the volunteers um, are doing their work uh, in the evening and in the night when the kids are asleep. <laughs> so, um, yeah, auto-scaling works great there. Yeah, that's awesome. I'm curious, with the delay job set up, uh, I forget the exact Kubernetes term. I think it might be something like the termination grace period or something like that. Like, do you have that configured to where if a job is mid-job and you make a new deploy, like that job will have some time to finish before the pod gets restart? Um, yeah, the way um, the jobs are started, um, they would stop immediately, but I think the grace period is uh, 30 or 60 seconds, but that's a cluster-wide default. We didn't uh, specifically configure that, um, because either um, that time is by far enough, because it's finishing in a few seconds, or it's a really long export and then it needs to be restarted anyway. Okay. And then do you just like create your jobs in such a way that, you know, it can potentially resume like a long running job that might take like two hours? No, um, because uh, we could, of course, uh, but we didn't invest the time because most of the time it doesn't matter. If you have a big uh, export of uh, all your um, members in the whole organization, because you need to send out a physical magazine or something, and you need to um, have the stickers for the post office. You export everything as um, address stickers, and this can take 30 minutes for a big organization, because, yeah, 100,000 people, that's a lot of objects to go through. Mm -hmm. And if that crashes because we have a deployment, um, then that's the case. But we don't have deployments so often that it uh, would completely pre prevent that from happening. Maybe this one export doesn't work, uh, but we, after that, it has plenty of room to uh, fit this half hour in to export everything. Okay. What about for more, I don't want to say dangerous types of jobs, but ones that have like more immediate side effects, like sending out, I don't know, an email to every single person in the group, like 20,000 of them. Uh, if you rerun that, would that mean like people will get duplicated emails maybe or no? Um, I think they would, but they don't because um, we have for every mail we uh, fetch that we need to multiplex, we uh, store a hash of that uh, mail and then work on it. And if we if the delay job worker crashes and needs to be restarted and sees, ah, there's this mail in the inbox, wants to address it, then they see, ah, wait, this hash is already present. I am going to raise an error uh, to the error reporting and yeah, just say that I cannot continue here. Um, sometimes the mail is already finished, couldn't just be cleaned up for some reason, or sometimes it's really in the middle of delivering and then it's a human call. Uh, do we send again or not? Uh, most of the time we just um, remove the safeguard and let it send again and then it's working. And yes, this can mean that people get a mail twice, but uh, if it's the new updated rules, how to be safe in a pandemic, maybe it's not too bad to send it out twice instead of not at all. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it sounds like you've come up with a really good system to 
protect against double emails except for the exception case, like the edge case of when it happens to be like mid-send. Yeah. It didn't happen overnight, though. <laughs> <laughs> right. Now, on the topic of, you know, I guess this is sort of in the same neighborhood of like disasters or unexpected events. Like, do you want to go over what you've done to back up certain things that might need to be backed up, like your database or maybe user uploads and whatnot? Yeah. Well, we do database backups um, in a Kubernetes or OpenShift cron job. I think cron jobs are Kubernetes um, that runs uh, daily, um, backups the whole database. Um, and I think the user uploads, which is uh, pictures of users or attachments to courses and events. I will need to check after the call. Uh, but I think that's also backed up. Um, so we have three versions of that available as direct dumps. And um, the hosting provider does snapshots of all the volumes 30 days back. So if our database backup is not working or somebody accidentally deleted a person, um, which is then hard deleted uh, because of confidentiality and stuff, um, then we can still go to the uh, hosting provider and say, we need this file um, from that date, which is two weeks away, and still can restore that. Or send this one to the client and say, those are the files, um, just pick what you need. Nice. Yeah, that's a very healthy backup routine. When those things get dumped by the Kubernetes cron job, where do they get dumped to? Do you have like a different hosting provider or some internal server somewhere? Um, no, those are... Well, first, they are dumped to the um, same hosting, and then we are storing them to a special volume. I think it's still on the same um, hosting provider, but I will need to check uh, where exactly they are. The snapshots of volumes, I think, are uh, off-site. So the 30-day back things are uh, basically our safety net, safety net. That's off-site. But the other is uh, in, in the cluster so that we can access it rather quickly because most of the time uh, the cluster is still there, just data is missing. Database is corrupted, and we just need to restore it from yesterday. For that, we have easy access. But um, for the harder problems, um, we have the provider-based backup. Now, on the topic of backups, did you ever have to revert from a backup because of something went wrong? Or did you ever you know, run through some protocols of just like, hey, let's go and test the backup to make sure it works? We don't test the backup specifically all the time, but uh, we use the same, because we also have backups from the integration, only one snapshot, but still, um, and use this uh, sometimes to recreate a specific scenario to debug a problem. And then we can just uh, download the dump um, and import it with the rake task, Rails task, sorry, too old for this, <laughs> um, and import this file, and it will then set up the machine the database on the developer machine in a way as it is in production or if needed as in production also, as in integration or in production. I think that brings up a, a really interesting thing that I'm also working through through some client work now where if you're taking production data and you are putting it onto a developer's box, do you run that through any type of like filtering system to get rid of confidential information or you just let the developer see that stuff? And I don't mean that in like a like a passive aggressive be like wow you can't just give that data to users but like yeah i'm curious like how does how does your organization deal with that 
basically by treating me like a grown-up. So it's, it doesn't feel great to have production data on my system. And I uh, delete it as soon as I can. I just need it to maybe verify some weird edge case. Um, and then it's gone again. Um, for the organizations that are in, in Hitobito right now, it's not that big of a deal. Sure, there's confidential data, and I would never give that out, but it's not um, personal medical information. So you just only get a social security number and stuff. It's not good to leak that, but it's also not a complete medical history of uh, how you broke your arm and what have you. So it's not too sensitive information, but... Um, Basically, everyone on the team is aware that it's personal information uh, and will not be leaked. For certain things like um, actual API secrets that uh, even we shouldn't know and we don't need to debug, uh, those are encrypted in the database. And maybe at some point also the social security numbers and stuff there also could also be encrypted. Uh, but that's work in progress and as it's open source... Uh, <laughs> Your pull request is welcome. <laughs> right. Actually, what's really cool about that one, I, I heard that DHH in the next version of Rails, like Rails 7, encrypted database fields are actually going to be a thing, which will make it very easy for people like you and me just to encrypt certain fields that we like, potentially all of them. Yeah. Um, I haven't seen that announcement, but I don't follow Rails uh, that closely anymore because I'm more in the trenches. Um, and... I like the software really stable. So when the next version comes around, I will look then at the uh, new features. If it's part of core Rails, I think that we will migrate things uh, over to there. In the past, I've used um, symmetric encryption, which is a gem to encrypt certain fields on the database. Um, and right now we have basically the same technique, but extracted to a small service to encrypt simple fields but i'm looking forward to getting rails more even more complete in that case that's the great thing about rails too that it's really batteries included except the admin panel <laughs> everything but that one thing <laughs> but yeah no I, I think the encryption stuff all came out of just building hey like their email service and they really wanted to take security to the next level so that's where it got extracted out from hey into uh, eventually rails core as far as I understand. Makes total sense. Um, I hope it's, it, it gets better um, as the Action Cable launch um, that was uh, where they only had the code and then had to rewrite a lot of things to make it fit into the open source project. But um, generally, uh, I trust what, they, what Rails does. Yeah, hopefully we will see soon enough. Now, by the way, on the topic of like disasters or you know things that could go wrong, do you have any like monitoring and alerting and logging things set up? Like, is that something OpenShift does for you, or do you have to do that yourself? Yes. Well, OpenShift does a little. So OpenShift displays some metrics, uh, how many uh, megabytes of cores were used, um, and that's nice. But uh, we have, since we have a real admin department, uh, we have Prometheus, which is, um, I think, a time scale database or time series database in a way um, or at least wraps one uh, and can be queried um, 
So the Rails apps provide or have a metrics exporter that uh, export the requests and um, memory, CPU, and runtimes um, to Prometheus. Um, Prometheus stores those, and then we have a dashboard that's uh, Grafana um, that reads from uh, one Prometheus or a Thanos, which is a long-term storage Prometheus provider. Um, and this dashboard is then in our uh, office uh, when we are there again, uh, so that everyone can see um, the metrics. We also use this for alerting, because you can, in Kubernetes, define uh, Prometheus rules. That's a custom resource. Um, but those are read by the Prometheus server, turned into a configuration, and whenever a metric reaches a certain threshold, like there are too many pods that are not in a completed state, or there's a pod that has an error state for jobs, maybe, or there is a CPU too high and stuff, then an alert is triggered. We use this specifically um, to uh, for the backups to see if the backup has been created. Sometimes something went wrong during the creation of the backup, um, and then we get a red alert or red bubble on our dashboard and uh, can decide to either debug or just run the backup again to get a fresh uh, backup. Yeah, that's basically the whole thing. For the backups or Jenkins jobs, um, and um, we have a little intermediary app because um, Prometheus is pull-based and the backups cannot be pulled because it's a job. Um, so we have a little app that we send the result of the backup uh, and other one-time actions to. And this app, also a small Rails app, just provides an endpoint for Prometheus to pull those metrics and then generate alerts from this. That's really cool. Yeah, I love to see that you've basically went all in with like utilizing your Kubernetes cluster to give you all that logging and, and alerts and monitoring. And you can do all that stuff in-house within the cluster. Yeah, when I um, when I came to Puzzle, um, I was convinced that Docker is a piece of work. Piece of work, let's go with that. Um, <laughs> and Docker did not provide anything for me, because what does it do? Nothing much. And it doesn't, doesn't solve the real problems like storage or permissions or networking. And then they introduced me to OpenShift here, and I saw how much, how cool it can be. OpenShift is for me, um, Docker, but working. Because you have all this. You have uh, authentication, you have projects, you have quotas, um, all those triggers and all those little bits and pieces that you can do in a Kubernetes cluster um, yourself. But I don't feel like it. So this is a solved problem. And yeah, it's for me, it's Docker that works. And ironically, um, I think in the next OpenShift version, they are even replacing the Docker uh, part, and it's now another Docker uh, container-based thing. But that just proved the concept of containers are working if you have a nice tool set around those. Yeah, because that's what it sounds like OpenShift kind of is. It's like an abstraction over even Kubernetes, which in itself is 
you know, a way to run containers in a consistent way, I suppose, is one way to describe that one, right? Giving you all those great things that we just talked about for the last, uh, like, 45 minutes or something. All those, you know, being able to scale your app and, you know, deal at running jobs and consistency and, you know, all this uh, observability and stuff. Yeah, it's awesome. So very cool stuff. Uh, do you have any, like, external services, though, like monitoring the public endpoints of your apps, like a health check that's, like, Pingdom or something like that? Yes, um, we have... I need to scroll my document a little. Um, we have um, uptime robot um, that's pinging, I think, every five minutes or every minute um, the uh, important instances, so only the production ones. That's the most important one. Um, then we have integrations in Hitopito for Airbrake and Sentry, actively using Ori only Sentry. So we have uh, our own Sentry setup uh, in our company and are sending all the errors there and yeah use that for debugging that's about it because also the uptime monitoring is done i think in part by openshift through the live and readiness probes which are i think also kubernetes part and then uh, our sys department also is yeah monitoring the most important endpoints but that's basically redundancy over uptime robot. Right. Now, that actually made me think back because now we're talking about, you know, external checks and things. Do you also happen to use something like external DNS inside of your cluster to deal with updating DNS records from Kubernetes for specific services? I don't know how much of this is Kubernetes and what is OpenShift. So maybe I'm just praising Kubernetes for being awesome here. Um, the way I learned it is that um, at the beginning there's an HA proxy, which um, has routes configured, and those routes point to services which are then a certain pod in the end. So my Rails application um, is exposed as a service which has a root, and those this root is basically a, a, a domain that is propagated to the HA proxy at the beginning, um, or the Two, they're running in parallel. For the external external DNS, um, I think we use DNS simple or DN simple. I always struggle to pronounce that one. Yeah, uh, yeah, that's funny because I had the same problem with pronouncing them. They were actually uh, a guest on the show in the past, and it's uh, DN simple. Okay, yeah, DN DN simple. So the external external DNS is um, done with DN simple. Um, and we are using, I think, OctoDNS um, to take our um, Git-based YAML configuration, again, YAML, um, to DNSimple. And there's a secondary DNS, I think, with DNS made easy. But I needed to research that a bit because it's so far away from my desk. Okay. And by the way, like with the external DNS, there is a Kubernetes component that you can install into your cluster that allows you to define like you're doing now with AJ proxy stuff, right? Like your different routes and domain names and subdomain matching and all that stuff. Like it can look at those host names and then go and make like an API call to DN simple to put them into your records without you having to do that. Is that something that you have hooked up or does that op OpenShift maybe does that or no? Um, we don't do that. Um, I haven't looked into it as well. <laughs> um, but we um, have the uh, DNS config in this one repo, and and whenever I add a new client, um, I add it specifically there explicitly. 
so there's no automatic um, thing going on. Uh, for the SAS application, it's only subdomains that get added, and those are handled good enough, I think. So uh, I haven't looked into the details there, uh, but it works, and all we have to do is add a new root, and then it's done. Okay. So I guess for like the SSL certs, maybe do you happen to use like a wildcard certificate then for the subdomains or no? Yes. So basically it's everything let's encrypt. But for the hitobito.com, I think we have either specifically um, requested a let's encrypt certificate or made a dedicated one just for that. Um, I haven't looked at it. Last time I checked, it was let's encrypt for everything. Okay. So... Maybe now we can switch gears a little bit and, and talk about your best tips and lessons learned from building all of this. The best lesson, um, don't extract or don't start with the general thing. Start with a specific thing you really need. Um, first solve your problem and then maybe, maybe even not, do something generic. Whenever people start to build the generic solution first, it tends to fall down. When you do it the other way around, you have clear at least one use case. Where you need to, what you need to solve, uh, what the real problems are, and maybe let the specific one run for a bit before generalizing it. Yeah, that's really good advice for sure. Because it's so easy to be like, well, I wrote this thing twice. Time to make an abstraction, and before you know it, it's like, yeah, it doesn't quite work the way you thought it's going to work when you tried to apply three or four different things to that one abstraction. Yeah, mostly, don't try to extract or extrapolate. Uh, a generic case from one instance because if I were otherwise I could extract uh, the whole word from just me and I realized that the whole word is not me and the same goes for software so you have unique problems and maybe there is an abstraction maybe there's something in common maybe there's something that all wagons of P2P2 can use but let's just test it in a few instances and then we can extract it and do something that's really useful or most likely not yeah i think you've built up a really cool system too though because it's like you can have these unique wagons for all of your different clients and you can choose to maybe put the common stuff into the core app that you have but if that ends up not being the right move you can still sort of i guess fairly easily kind of bring that back into the wagon specifically and like not have it affect everyone else. You know, like you have the option to do that, I guess. Yes, yes. It's uh, a friend of mine once said um, over IT in general or about IT in general, it's all about isolation and compartmentalization and keeping things apart and putting things in modules. Um, that's all it is. The wagon system allows us to put those wagon specific, those organization specific things into their own place. Yeah, that was uh, definitely a great Im implementation of that one. So on that note, Matthias, thanks a lot for coming on the Running In Production podcast. It was really great having you on. It was great being here. Thank you. Yeah, no problem. So before we wrap this up, do you want to share any links to your site, Twitter, GitHub profile, anything like that? So you could go to uh, our website, hitobito.com. That's H-I-T-O-B-I-T-O. Uh, -O -O. Also, there's demo.hitobito.com. And on GitHub there we have an organization also with Hitobito. That's basically Japanese for many people. So H-I-T-O-B-I-T-O. Uh, -I -T -O -B -I -T -O. Um, 
And our company is called Puzzle. It's uh, puzzle like the tricky thing .ch. And the GitHub organization is also Puzzle. On the internet, I am Kron. That's K R O W N. Except where I'm not, then it's D E R, which is German for the <laughs> D E R underscore Kron on Twitter and Instagram. Yeah, that's basically it. I'm not very active there. I just code more. Right. So that's quite the resume. I'll make sure to drop all those links into the show notes because there's quite a few of them. But if anyone wants to check them out, they are going to be there. Uh, and on that note, to everyone listening, thanks for tuning in, and I'll see you in the next one. You've been listening to the Running In Production podcast. You can find a full archive of the show at runninginproduction.com. Also, don't forget to subscribe using your favorite podcast player or leave a review if you like the show.